Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last weekend, we attended the Halifax International Security Forum in Nova Scotia that brought together political, diplomatic, national security, and civil society leaders from around the world to address the hard questions facing democracies. The focus of the conference was Russia's war on Ukraine and why the international community must support Kyiv through victory. But other panels discussed Iran's increasingly brutal crackdown on demonstrations as well as the key role of women in society, climate change that's driving destabilizing migrations, the perils of food insecurity, the dangers of disinformation, and the threat posed by autocratic regimes like China to their own people and their neighbors and global security. While in Halifax, we had an opportunity for a series of interviews. We met with a number of leaders, and on today's program, we'll hear from Olga Stefanishnia, Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister for European and Euro-Atlantic Integration, Latvia's National Security Advisor, Yanis Kaisuchins, the Supreme Commander of Sweden's Armed Forces, General Mikhail Budian, and Washington Post reporter Jason Rezaian. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. First, we'll hear from Olga Stefanishnia, the senior most Ukrainian official attending the forum, who made the case for continued international support for Ukraine so that it can maintain momentum and reclaim territory invaded by Russia, including Crimea. Here's our conversation. Ma'am, thanks very much. Uh, it's an honor uh, to have some time with you. I wanted to ask, um, you know, we, you had a, we just had a, a fascinating press conference and you were very generous with your time and thanks for spending some time with us. One of the questions is how we prepare for the next phases of this operation. We heard from uh, Admiral Rob Bauer, uh, the chairman of the NATO Military Committee, where he, it was basically a plea for we have to get our armaments act together, uh, that the uh, Western nations are drawing on stocks that were already not entirely full. And now we see a lot of activity on the part of Washington, uh, as well as on Ukraine's part, to build the kind of capabilities needed for the fight that's to come. What are the kind of capabilities that Ukraine is going to need when you look six months, eight months, one year, two years down the road that you need to build in terms of capabilities? First and foremost, we should continue planning and strategic planning without looking back whether there is a full-scale war still in place or not. So we should work already now on strategic defense capacity of Ukraine and our capability to defend ourselves and uh, inability of the other state to have hunger to, to attack. Uh, and uh, it requires now an additional coordination effort from all allies, both at the level of the political leaders, but also at the level of defense industries, because now we're talking about more strategic planning. We have made a vital survival effort by establishing the Rammstein format and U.S. lead on that, which has been literally the, 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 the element of our survival. We are very much coordinated. We are able to plan our military operations based on the predictability and transparency of shipment and supplies. But 
we are surviving, we're striving, we're winning, and we need to understand what comes next because we continue to need massive military support. We continue to, ne to need massive military support to help us protect our sky, protect our civilian population. We continue to need massive support to restore our critical infrastructure. And this is something which cannot be given just out of the existing reserves. This should be planned in advance, even having in mind that the war could be over relatively soon, either it will be lasting. So uh, additional coordination effort on top of everything we have is needed. So we would call it a strategic Rammstein or the security guarantees one could call it in a different way, but uh, strategic defense planning is needed to make sure that we can close our sky by anti-air defense system and that we have continuous supplies and support in the ammunition to every type of military um, equipment that we already have. Uh, do you feel comfortable, though, that we as allies and partners and your own capability are moving quickly enough to satisfy your needs at the speed you need them. You know, we were talking earlier about how many air defense missiles are shot a week. You said roughly about 90 of those missiles are shot a week. That's a huge amount, and we tend to build this in boutique quantities. Are we producing enough stuff and getting it to you in enough time, and are you comfortable with the pipeline as you look one year out, for example? Well, the question is just the, uh, is just the same. That's what you're saying. Are we producing enough? So it's not now about do we have enough? Uh, it's are we producing enough for today, for tomorrow, and for, uh, for a certain period of time. And this is where the industries should be stepping up into the dialogue. And it's not something only can go government can deliver on by having the commitment or financial possibility. U.S. can uh, allocate another dozens of millions of dollars to military support of Ukraine, but if their industry are unable to produce the amount needed, this would be in vain. So there should be a full alignment in defense planning and industrial planning uh, and the needs that Ukraine have, and we need it to start in now. Do we need to sort of reinvent how we do these missions? Uh, Ukraine has been an extraordinary incubator for new ideas, new operational concepts, as well as sort of combining commercial technology with military technology. From, from your perspective, how much of this is an industrial mass issue? How much of this is an innovation issue? I would not say it's industrial mess. It is Russia who has brought the military context as a priority to all of us, because to survive, we need to be uh, to be strong from the military point of view and to survive, allies should uh, increase their attention to their defense planning. And it's not us, and it's not us who brought this context into the agenda. It was, it was Russia who did it. So there's no mess. There is a need to readjust and become stronger, opposite to unwillingness to irritate Russian Federation. I would say it uh, this way. Uh, innovation uh, is something which is happening on a battlefield today. And we will accumulate this experience and make uh, us stronger and make the allies stronger. But I, I would reserve it for the peaceful time. Um, let me ask you uh, two more questions. Two more questions. Just one. Sorry, I have to go. Oh. My people are waiting. Ah, okay. All right. Um, let me ask you one last question, and it's about Russia. The Russians have proven to be very rapidly learning adversaries. And there's a sense that we have in the West, ah, they were defeated in Kherson, uh, this is a time perhaps to negotiate, as opposed to thinking of Vladimir Putin as the Terminator. Basically, he's going to keep going as long as he has the power to do so. 
how do we need to think about their capabilities and their learning abilities and their actual commitment to defeat Ukraine ultimately? I think that the major answer to this question is the timing. Uh, what Russians are good about is uh, in adjusting. They do a small step, a small provocation, and they watch the reaction, and then they adjust. So it's really important that we do not give them this room for adjusting in any kind of scenario. So, uh, and uh, it would be only possible if we will not be reflecting to their provocation, but we will have this 10-point plan which has been presented by the president, and this would be our plan, our unity. We are going to move towards that, and that would allow that we act fast, united and we hold Russia accountable, cut out the hunger for any other aggression, even though they might get the necessary experience at this stage for that purpose. We also met with Latvia's national security advisor, Yanis Kaisuchins, a retired Latvian army brigadier who was born and raised by Latvian parents in the United Kingdom. He served in the British army for 30 years and towards the end of his career was based in Riga as Britain's defense attaché to Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. He then advised the Latvian army, became a citizen, led the nation's net, led the nation's external intelligence agency before uh, subsequently becoming national security advisor. Here's our conversation with Yanis Kaisuchins. Sir, uh, thanks very much. It's an absolute honor and pleasure uh, having you on the program, uh, especially somebody with your extraordinary background uh, as a soldier, as a statesman, as an intelligence, uh, senior intelligence officer, and now a national security advisor. Um, Latvia is and always has been a, a frontline state in this and was well before the Ukraine invasion uh, among the nations that were warning uh, the rest of Europe, what it is that we were up against, um, why buying gas, for example, from the Russians was problematic. Um, what is it that you think people, not just in Europe, but even in the Americas, might be missing as there's increasing talk, let's negotiate a settlement, uh, let's end this war, whereas Putin seems much more like the Terminator. Um, he is going to keep going until you crush the life out of him. What is it that people need to remember about the adversary that we're really all effectively fighting uh, through Ukraine? Well, I think it's not just Putin. I think uh, we need to understand uh, that we're talking about imperialism. We're talking about um, uh, centuries-old imperialism. And um, if this sounds uh, strange, then let us remember that, uh, and I'll give two examples, that um, after the Second World War in 1956, France and United Kingdom uh, tried to take back the Suez Canal, which was a blatant act of imperialism, and Eisenhower stopped them. And it took till 1962 for France to recognize uh, after the bloody terrorism um, attacks, uh, after a mutiny in the armed forces, change in constitution that Algeria is not part of metropolitan France with three départements, um, but a country in North Africa on the other side of the Mediterranean. It sounds laughable now. But uh, Western Europe were countries which had imp uh, empires. Russia is a country which is an empire, and it's been expanding and contracting regularly. Now, the second aspect of this is that uh, Russia is an authoritarian, um, maybe even totalitarian state now. And that means that for Russia, um, 
uh, a successful Ukraine is uh, an existential threat to Putinism. Uh, Russia isn't afraid of NATO because um, Russia understands very well that 30, soon 32 NATO nations are not going to find consensus to attack Russia. And, uh, and they, they, they say that. And I have good reason to believe that, uh, that that's what they think. Uh, the European Union, on the other hand, with its good governments, rule of law, um, uh, a democracy, is a direct challenge, particularly... If Putin, as I believe he does, genuinely thinks that the Russian nation is one large nation artificially divided into three countries, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. And if one of those three can live normal lives in which somebody, because they're in the FSB or in a particular political party, can take your family business away from you. If you argue, they'll stick you in, in prison and they, you've got no recourse to the law. Well, maybe the bigger part of the, uh, of the nation might start to think that way as well. That's why you have to destroy a democratic, um, successful Ukraine, whatever it takes. If Putin is regarding this as an existential threat, he is likely then to fight to the bitter end. Hence my sort of model that he is the terminator and he has to be defeated. Um, but ultimately, how is he defeated? There was an expectation that there were going to be demonstrations in the streets. As you said, the nation has become more totalitarian uh, and the Russian people have an enormous ability to bear down. In fact, his attitude is you may have all the clocks, I have all the time. Uh, you will lose patience with this and we will eventually prevail. What's the mindset necessary? What are the next steps? How does this play out? And what's the way to kill the Terminator? ultimately? Well, uh, first of all, how it won't end, and that is that if uh, the West somehow persuades Ukraine to go for a ceasefire after Ukraine's dramatic successes in Kharkiv and Kherson, um, and uh, the um, uh, Russians having a, a strong defensive line, if we persuade or push Ukraine into a ceasefire, then all we will get is a frozen conflict. And in two or three years' time, when Russia has rearmed, it will go back. And Putin will uh, explain this as a success because he's got more territory than he had um, um, prior to the 24th of February. Uh, what, uh, therefore, we need to do is to ensure that he is not able to exercise this imperial thinking any longer outside Russia proper, that he uh, understands that Russia is Russia. And even that is problematic because the uh, countries like or parts of Russia like Chechnya may well want to break off again. Uh, but I uh, suspect that um, there will be internal um, difficulties within those uh, who wield power in Russia. Uh, it is not for. Uh, it is noteworthy that people like Kadyrov, the president of Chechnya, uh, that Prigozhin, who is the um, head of the largest of the private armies, Wagner group, are uh, openly criticizing the president, which we haven't heard before. 
Um, and uh, that gives the impression that behind the scenes there is already jockeying for position about who is going to take up the reins of power after Putin because Putin has made so many disastrous calls in Ukraine now and so many Russian as well as Ukrainian lives have been lost that it's unsustainable. Now, whoever it is, probably will be worse than Putin, potentially. Um, but the upside of that is that they're unlikely to be able to last long because um, Putin has spent 20 years building up his power base and his power vertical. And whoever uh, or whatever group uh, take his place will not have this background. And when that f fails as... Um, it almost certainly has to fairly uh, quickly because of the, Russia's economic situation and uh, uh, not least Western sanctions and um, the uh, green course that we're all on. Then there is a possibility that we might be able to do something to help democracy on its way and help people like Vladimir Karamurza. Now, why is this so important to us? And what, do, what is our ultimate aim? I would say that uh, no matter how much Latvians like skiing and mountains, we can't change places with Switzerland. Unfortunately, that's how things are. But uh, our aim should be that we should have the same kind of relationship with a future Russia as the Benelux countries have with Germany which invaded them twice during the last century, as Russia did us. But it is literally inconceivable now. And I believe that it is possible that something like that could come about in, with a future Russia. But we will have to put a lot of effort and, and um, work into helping it along. Um, let me ask what that help is, right? Um, there is this, uh, we heard from the Congress, and it was very moving, I should say, uh, for the audience. Uh, Peter McKay, the former uh, Canadian defense minister and patron and, and co-founder of this great event, along with Peter Van Prague, um, uh, read a very moving letter from Vladimir Karamurza uh, from uh, the Russian prison uh, where he is last year. Uh, Vladimir was here and a lot of people were asking him, why are you going to go back? They're going to arrest you. And that's exactly why he went back, yeah. because uh, he, he's, he knew and he said, but I'm Russian and I'm going to go back to Russia. What does Europe and the West need to be doing by way of both military assistance? Uh, because again, the Russian attitude is a bit like the Terminator. You may have all the clocks. I have all the time. I'm going to wait you guys out. What are the long-term actions we have to take? And from your professional opinion is it is it a five-year window a 10-year window what's the time span we we have to plan for ultimately because there's massive resources that are going into this well for a start the the time span i don't think is is possible to to say we are in the same sort of position as the west was in the 1980s we knew that the soviet U uh, union was going to collapse but we didn't know whether it was going to take um 20 years uh, two years or two months uh, in the same t uh, way, we don't know what's going to happen now. Um, how uh, uh, how uh, we can help? Well, um, uh, there are uh, people like Vladimir uh, who are uh, genuine Democrats. They may not be in a majority, 
But let's bear in mind the problems which uh, Russia has, uh, not only uh, sanctions, not only a, a, a failed war, and we know that failed wars in the past in Russia's history have shown that um, change comes, revolutionary change, after 1905, J Japan, after the First World War fall of the Tsars, after Afghanistan, fall of the Soviet Union. So it's, that's, that's how things happen. Um, uh, uh, but there are other aspects as well. Uh, Russia for 40 years has not invested in infrastructure or industry other than coal, gas and oil. And these are no longer required by the main training partner, which is Europe. And finding a ways to sell it to the Chinese or Indians is not that straightforward. Therefore, that's going to really hit. And then there is demography. If at the beginning of the Great Patriotic War in 1941, um, the average age of Russians were of, of the Soviet Union was something over 20 years old because they had large families, six, eight children, not unusual. Uh, the average age of Russians on the 24th of February of this year was 39.4. They no longer have cannon fodder, yet they conduct warfare as if they had cannon fodder without paying attention to human beings' lives. And uh, modern Russians are no longer prepared to go along with it. And we see that with those poor people who've been mobilized and sent to the front for just this sort of purpose. Uh, and, and again, right, I mean, that's uh, part of the, uh, the compact that Russians had with their, or rather Putin's compact was, I'm going to give you economic growth, you keep your head down, we're all going to prosper, yeah. you get to go to a nightclub, buy Western products and vacation in, in Europe, uh, and take a nice vacation to Cyprus, and now all of a sudden, uh, they're, well, at least the, the rich aren't doing that. Um, yeah. What, uh, the Russians are expert at uh, all manner of asymmetric means. You were in the intelligence business uh, and also engage in, in the regular uh, misinformation, disinformation campaigns, cyber influence operations. What do folks need to learn from your experience as Baltic states uh, and the pressure you guys have been under over the last few years? I thought it was interesting that in 2014, we've discussed this before, uh, when the Newport summit was happening and NATO was pledging every ounce of you know European territory will be inviolate, Russians going to Estonia, grab an intelligence officer, took a Lithuanian fishing boat. The train breaks down in Latvia and a Russian general says, yep, about six hours, and that's how long it would take us to invade you. And NATO did nothing uh, about that. Um, from your perspective, what do we need to know about the asymmetric means with which the Russians are still are still trying to wage uh, this uh, campaign, although it does appear that it's somewhat more brittle uh, in in how we're able to counter them. What what is it that folks need to know about how to counter this kind of capability? Well, first of all, um, uh, watching the parades on Red Square on the 9th of May every year, uh, the Russian military looked 12 foot tall, the second most powerful military in the world. We now know they are not the second most powerful military in the world for a number of reasons, not least because of uh, mismanagement, corruption, um, and, uh, and, uh, and a lack of morale. Uh, uh, Napoleon put it very clearly, the moralist or the physical is three is to one, and we see that very clearly at the moment in Ukraine. Um, what do we uh, need to do? Well, 
I think uh, all general, generals try to fight the last war, only do it rather better. And the last war is the one that we are watching at the moment in Ukraine. Let us bear in mind that the uh, withdrawal from Kherson was extremely professional. And I don't think most of those who are watching expected the Russians to be able to get most of their decent kit across the river and 20 to 30,000 troops across the river uh, without taking massive casualties. And that is under threat of high Mars and all sorts of other ways that the Ukrainians could have stopped them. Um, a lot was involved, disinformation, uh, good discipline, just goes to show that the Russians are capable of learning. So instead of thinking they're 12 foot tall, we must be very, very wary of thinking they're four foot tall. Um, as for fighting the last war, um, uh, I don't think that anyone in the Kremlin, uh, current um, president or his successor, will want to get into a punch-up with NATO. But what they will do is try to push the envelope in such a way that um, uh, they achieve their objectives in other ways. And therefore, um, the interior ministry uh, systems, border guards, police force, fire and rescue services are absolutely as important as the armed forces. And uh, civilian morale and understanding of what's going on is just as important because we're getting into um, not just information war, but cognitive war where attitudes matter as much as, um, uh, as uh, um, uh, fake news. Sir, thanks very much. Uh, absolutely fascinating uh, discussion and looking forward to having you back on the program soon. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. While in Halifax, we also met with the Supreme Commander of Sweden's Armed Forces, General Mikhail Budian, who is playing a critical role in preparing the country's armed forces for membership in NATO. Here's our conversation. Sir, it's an absolute honor and pleasure uh, seeing you again, uh, and congratulations on the process of uh, joining NATO. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to see you as well. Um, I wanted to start off first. Um, you were one of the uh, long time and among many clear Swedish voices talking about the danger and the threats uh, from Russia and how the international community should be uh, looking at them. You once in an interview told me that the Russians were being simply stupid uh, in the dangerous way that they were operating over the Baltic. From your perspective, uh, what are the most important lessons uh, you're drawing as Supreme Commander? from Russia's performance, the international response, uh, and fundamentally how the war is evolving on the battlefield. It's a lot of insights we are now getting. You, should, you shouldn't uh, take the uh, conclusions too far, what, what the Russians are doing just on a, on a daily basis and, and how it is. But we never took our eyes and ears from what Russia could do and what they're doing. We also followed very, very closely the build-up, and we knew pretty good what they had there and and in January we said to ourselves now they can they, they have uh, opportunities to do whatever the full-fledged invasion was not what we saw coming but it did so so lessons learned first of all uh, willingness to take high risk with you when you have intentions you, you you can't exclude anything as of now when we say will they do this or will they do that yeah, they could if, if the capabilities are there they could you need to 
we relearn now because we thought we we knew Russian uh, perspective very good, but they proved now to, or he proved to be much more willing to take the risk. And now with less successes, with a with a Western unity and, and solidarity, uh, we can't exclude anything. We follow them very, very closely as we always did, but now we need to put another layer on it. And, and uh, do you think that this, right, I mean, there's this sense Ukraine should negotiate, let's bring this to a conclusion. Uh, there are other voices that say actually Putin is going to keep going. He's a little bit like the Terminator. Unless he's defeated, he's going to keep pushing. What's your perception in terms of the character of this? And does it end, you know, can you negotiate an ended solution to this? Or is this something that means he will act out someplace else potentially? First of all, I think we, we agree and we need to, to remember who the bad guy is here. It's Russia that has invaded a sovereign state, a country in Europe. So, so having said that, uh, we should. The, the most important thing is that we stay united. Uh, that we are. That we we continue to support Ukraine best way, uh, because they are now fighting fighting a war. We don't see any deviation from Russia's aims and goals here. We see a long-term conflict and we need to support the Ukrainian and they are the ones that know what the needs are and what the priorities are and we listen very careful now when we when I hand in recommendations to government to to for the coming uh, for the coming uh, decisions we had another one this week uh, the eight support package with which is uh, significant uh, air defense systems uh, as an example so so we should continue to do so and listen to the Ukrainians um, let me uh, take you uh, to the question of joining uh, NATO. You're going to be uh, the supreme commander who's helping uh, navigate this. The chief of the Air Force is going to become the operational commander, a new role uh, in the Swedish military to do the coordination across the alliance. From your standpoint, uh, what are all the military things that Sweden is now doing to pave the way for its alliance membership in terms of developing capability, interoperability and the like? Well, I would say we, we need to continue what we already have started. The, the growth that started maybe 2015 for, to a certain level, but accelerated in 2020. Five-year decision with high ambitions, uh, more money, uh, a bigger wartime organization, more conscripts, new capabilities. Uh, and so, so we need to be a stronger defense nationally. That's part of the NATO deterrence. So uh, we, we will continue to grow, make sure we do whatever we can nationally to be able to defend the country, meaning also that we will be able to defend the alliance when we become uh, members. This is, uh, this is one part. Then of course we learn what, what the requirements will be when we enter the alliance. We also need to understand what the expectations are and we need to show very early that we are a serious, a serious coming ally, meaning what I see we can, we can take part of, of air policing in our region early, uh, maritime standing forces early, uh, make sure we have host nations support uh, capabilities to, to, uh, to take care of, of incoming support the day when that's needed. So, so it's a variety of things. I am so uh, uh, happy about the welcoming it's the the welcoming for for being uh, for for finland and sweden coming in as as nato allies was much more than i ever expected 
with that comes the expectations. And I know that we, we will be net contributors first day when we enter. We will add to NATO deterrence capabilities. And I'm, this, is not in, this is not very Swedish. We, we never talk about ourselves this way. But I know now, having, having met my, uh, my partners coming allies, and, and I will tell you, we will do whatever we can to meet the expectations. Um, from a capability development standpoint, does NATO membership change? You know, you said that there was a fundamental plan for modernization. Obviously, the new version of the Gripen coming in, the A-26 submarine coming in, as well as other investments, and then expanding also the, the size of the force. Talk to us a little bit about some of the different capabilities you think you'll have to be investing in uh, over the coming years, both drawn off of Ukraine lessons, but as well uh, for um, what your NATO obligations will, will entail. Mm -hmm. the, the, our current plan, I would say, is in general terms valid. We need we need to to continue what we have done to be a, be a bigger, more robust organization, a balance between the fighting forces and and logistics. But but I've also been very keen. I handed in my my Supreme Commander advice to government two weeks ago, and and to my to my staff members I said. The conclusions we now can, can make and, and, and feel comfortable with, they need to have an impact on the current plans. What would that be? Well, one thing I need to make sure is that we, we, we now can enter uh, integrated air and missile defense systems. That's, that's one example. Make sure we have uh, C2 systems, interoperable ones, so we, so we can do the job, and also the host nation support. It's not only to send a welcoming letter to someone, say, come and help us. We need logistic footprints uh, in, in, uh, that is already there to make sure when help would, would, uh, would come, uh, would arrive, we need to make sure to get them into operation. So, so these are three things I, I will make sure now that we will accelerate or make sure we can do. Um, let me ask you, you know, you mentioned uh, Swedish uh, strategic culture. That was shaped by 300 years uh, of approach, 200 years of sort of saying, look, we rely on ourselves. It worked during the Cold War. I think people uh, fail to realize the force that you led as the Swedish Air Force was the fourth largest air force in the world uh, at the time. And I would say even the best integrated air force, in part because Swedish data systems were so good. Indeed, it's said that Link 16's arrival was a step down in terms of capability from a Swedish perspective, uh, just to give you the shout out for, 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 the, for the team. Is there, what kind of work are you doing internally with the Swedish security mindset to prepare for much more of an alliance uh, re relationship, a partnership perspective that Sweden has not had for hundreds of years, even though Carl Bildt would disagree with that and said, hey, once we became an EU nation, we did have allies. But what's the internal challenge for you to communicate and to make sure that people are thinking about the challenge the, and the opportunity the right way. The bulk of the job has already been done. We have worked as, as partners uh, side by side with Finland as very close partners in training uh, exercises and not least operations in Afghanistan, Operation Unified Protector over Libya. We know each other. We know each other by heart, all levels. Uh, command levels and down to soldier levels. So we, so we know, and, and we know that we, we fit. But, but you point out a thing that I, that I, I shouldn't say I, we have underestimated, but the mental transition coming from a partner country, non-military allied, 
to be a full-fledged member, an ally. And this is a mental transition, not only for the defense forces. It's, it's, not, it's not my armed forces only that will become NATO members. It's Sweden, it's my country that will now enter in being uh, allies, being members, uh, a political driven big organization for security and that mental transition that will take a, a while. We need to inform and we need to educate what this is all about and that goes for the armed forces but also for society in, in general. Uh, let me ask you one last uh, Nordic uh, cooperation uh, uh, question. Um, most of the Nordic nations were NATO nations with the exception of Finland and Sweden. Finland and Sweden are now going to be part of uh, NATO as well uh, and obviously still very strong links uh, that Sweden has had with all the nations around the Baltics, uh, I should point out. What does this do for the future of Nordic cooperation and the integration and cooperation that happens uh, going all the way from Greenland, Iceland, all the way up to the Arctic Circle to the top of Finland? Great question. And, and Nordic cooperation has been one of the focus areas. You know that we and Finland, Sweden and Finland has the closest cooperation, meaning we have plans to be able to fight beyond peacetime pending political questions. That's one part. Nordefco cooperation. We say to ourselves now, the four uh, chiefs of defenses, cooperation is, is as important as before. It will be easier for us. Uh, if we also, we have one very clear advice to, to NATO, and that would be keep us together as an entity when it comes to the command and control structure. We don't say we need to, to belong to, to that uh, forces command or the other, but keep us together because then we will have a better situation to take care of security in our region. We do region, but remember, it's Arctic, it's Baltic Sea, but it glues together with the Balkans, with the Black Sea. So we also say, we understand that there is a 360 degree perspective here, which is very important. But we will have a better off situation if we stick together, continue the, the Nordic cooperation, and, and if they can, can yeah, see us as, a, as an entity up north, that, that will be safer and more secure. Um, two uh, quick questions. When you were uh, chief of the Swedish Air Force, you would talk not just about the importance of air defense, but also of deep strike in a way, and it was eyebrow raising at the time that you said that, but it was a very pragmatic case that these guys are dangerous and they have a lot of long range precision conventional weaponry. What kind of investment does the Alliance have to do seeing the damage that some of these Russian systems can do? at range, and not many NATO countries, aside from the United States, has an ability to actually reach at those ranges. Well, I'm a bit more humble than telling the Alliance what the Alliance need to do, but we need to make sure we fit into, as an example again, uh, IAMD, uh, Integrated Missile Air and Defense System. That, that will be, that, that's crucial, and we need to, to be be part of that and, and we should should do that early that that's one part and also from a national standpoint we are now looking into the plans to get a long uh, range uh, capacity would it be uh, artillery uh, long range or would it be on on the fighter aircraft that that that's to be seen but that, that's another part i'm looking at
Uh, last question. Um, anybody who knows uh, Sweden knows that when the United States now is talking about agile combat employment, NATO Alliance is talking about that, but Sweden has been practicing that uh, literally for uh, three quarters of a century. Throughout the Cold War, uh, road bases and distributed operations were something the force prided itself on. In fact, when you started your career, yeah. uh, you were operating out of the middle of nowhere, rearming your aircraft and getting back out there. And when you talk to U.S. Air Force and U.S. military leaders, they look to Sweden and say, wow, some really great examples of how to do that. What do you think some of the lessons and ideas that Swedish innovation can bring the alliance that can then help the collective whole be better at its job? Yeah, I do believe uh, part of it would be being a, a small, uh, small armed forces in a relatively big uh, uh, re area, territory, also a very harsh one with, with the winter conditions and so so winter conditions in combination with being a small force need, we need to be if I may smarter than than a bigger uh, opponent uh, tactically be able to uh, to to spread our capabilities be tougher to to get hold of or to hurt so the, and th this is exactly what we're now looking at uh, for an example with the with the US Air Force and that would be a dispersed operation if i may smaller units quicker units quick turnarounds whatever and and we know this but now it's in a in a new situation also with new technology uh, unmanned uh, uh, space uh, and and a lot of things, very exciting things and and this is uh, this is something I'm really looking forward to sir thanks very much Fairwinds following seas always a pleasure seeing you already looking forward to seeing you again soon thank you sir same same here thank you very much great to see you thanks we also spoke to Jason Resign, an award-winning Washington Post reporter who was serving as the paper's Tehran bureau chief when he and his wife were arrested by Iranian authorities in July 2014. Accused of espionage, he was tried in secret and imprisoned for 544 days in the country's notorious Evin prison. He was released in January 2016 and wrote about his captivity in the 2019 book, Prisoner, My 544 Days in an Iranian Prison. Here's our conversation with Jason Rezaian. Jason, thanks very much uh, for joining us. It's an absolute uh, pleasure. I want to start off with, you know, so many conversations here at the Forum about Iran uh, and what's happening, women's role uh, in Iran. What do Americans need to know about the brutality of this regime that is playing out? Obviously, you were a victim of it uh, as an uh, uh, Iranian-American, but also this sort of sense of, well, people are taking to the streets, so obviously the mullahs are going to be on the run. And I don't believe that that's necessarily the case. What, what do folks need to bear in mind, policymakers and others, about how to think about this situation and then plan accordingly for it? Well, first of all, I think it's um, indicative of the, of the, the moment that uh, it's been such a subject of conversation during this year's forum. Um, Iran uh, is a perennial challenge that the U.S. and our allies face. Uh, this is my fourth year coming to Halifax, and it's the first time that it's been high up on the agenda. Um, and so I think that that's uh, an important thing uh, to, to recognize, that, that people are, are seeing this as an issue beyond just uh, Iran's um, military, military intervention in neighboring countries, but also the nuclear program. Uh, but as far as the brutality of the regime and their abuses of power, their abuses of human rights, um, the potential that they're committing crimes against humanity, 
This is something that we need to be investigating all the time, and, and it's a regime that, um, you know, in many ways is on the ropes right now. Uh, I think what we can learn from this moment is that the uh, Iranian people have demands, very legitimate ones, led by women, that the regime can't meet and are not going to be able to meet. So I think we need to get comfortable with the idea that for the foreseeable future, months, if not years, there's going to be a protracted struggle between the people of Iran and the state. Um, and as Western democracies, we need to figure out how to, uh, to support those aspirations of Iranians while at the same time containing all the rest of these horrible things that they do. Um, in, as in any diaspora community, there are many different ideas on how to do that. One of the panel discussions was, you know, the, um, international, uh, the international community should sever diplomatic relations, close embassies and withdraw them. The counterpoint to that is then we have no influence and no way to help. Uh, ultimately, what does a smart strategy look like? Because just like Russia, Iran has benefited from a global community that was interested in its energy. Um, we used it as a weapon in terms of trying to control their nuclear program, and so we set that as a goal. We're back to bizarrely negotiating a JCP, you know, renewed JCPOA. What's the sort of totality, and what does maybe the international community's response to Russia's war on Ukraine tell us about how we need to handle and deal with Iran? I think we should be taking uh, that kind of approach, a more robust, unified approach to Iran. Um, as far as the calls to completely disengage with Iran and isolate them either for, even further, I don't think that necessarily works. Maybe you, you know, uh, recall your ambassadors and expel theirs, but you need to have some modes of trans communication between uh, Iran and the rest of the world. We haven't had that in the United States with Iran for 43 years, and we've suffered because of it. Our intelligence on Iran is weak. We have to rely on intelligence from partners who um, are not dispassionate when it comes to Iran. So um, I, I think keeping the lines of communication open to say, hey, you execute a single protester, that's a red line that if you cross, we will do X. They have no indication that the U.S. is paying close attention to what's going on in the street right now. Because when we listen to the messages of the Biden administration, uh, while they are condemning the violence, there's a level of nuance and complexity from our understanding of what's going on there um, that, that doesn't exist in Ukraine. We have all sorts of people on the ground in Ukraine. We've got the entire you know, Western media on the ground in Ukraine. And, and we should be there. But we should also be inside Iran. Uh, but it's too dangerous a place to do that. So, you know, I think it's a kind of a chicken and egg situation where, you know, we, when we isolate them further, they have the ability to uh, enshroud their society even more. And we have even less of an, uh, 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 an ability to have accurate insights to what goes on there. So I would say you know, you can engage without appeasing, and, you know, that should be the approach. What was interesting to me, even as somebody who pays attention to this, the recitation of the series of mass atrocities the, the Iranian regime has committed. There's a tendency, you know, we know about the hostages that are taken, the shootdown of the jetliner, and that was an extremely moving uh, story about how, you know, Canadian Iranians who constituted the bulk of that flight, uh, that in a panic, uh, Iranian authorities shot down and then lied about and then finally uh, admitted to. 
why is it that it, the, the deaths of thousands of people at a time, mass executions, haven't really moved the international community to action in a way that if many other places had done, there would be a little bit more motion. As someone who's been watching Iran for most of my life and has spent a lot of time living there, traveling there, I think we have this sort of um, dual approach to Iran. We uh, punish them with sanctions and other means to uh, an extent that we don't do with other countries. But we also allow them to get away with things that we don't let other countries get away with. Because it's almost assumed that they're going to be terrible actors. Um, and I think that they have had a, an approach uh, to that that has best, you know, I best describe it as have your cake and eat it too, right? They want to be taken seriously. They want a seat at the big kids table at every international, uh, you know, convention. Um, they want to uh, be a, a leader. And frankly, as you know, for millennia, Persia, Iran has been a leading uh, light of culture and uh, thought in, a, in that part of the world, and everyone will acknowledge that. They might not acknowledge it to you publicly, but everyone looks to that empire um, as uh, uh, with some respect and admiration, if nothing else. Um, and so, you know, the Iranians have kind of become full of themselves a little bit. They think that they can make all these demands and not have to play by the rules of the rest of the world. It's a, maybe a second-tier power. Right? I mean, its defense budget is less than that of the Netherlands. This is not a country that can wipe anything off the face of the map, right? Uh, so while it's, you know, big and influential and has vast energy resources, it hasn't put all the pieces of the puzzle together, um, and, and we should not let them get away with all the things that they do. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting you say that because um, I'm not saying regime figures, but you know, those who study Iran make clear its mentality is that of a world, if not massive regional power for the last 3,500 years. And so that shapes your mentality that, you know, I am a big deal. Uh, as, you know, one Iranian official was once, you know, remarkably dismissive of everybody else. You know, they were living in tents while we were living in great palaces and writing. Uh, but it tells you a little bit about the mentality. Um, the, what is an integrated approach that we need when we're dealing with all regimes like this? Because if you put, you can put China in this bucket, Russia in this bucket, Iran has firmly been in this bucket, North Korea. What does a more integrated strategy, because it seems like we're somewhat ad hoc, the administration seems to be getting to a more consistent message to tie Russia, Ukraine to China, Taiwan. What is a more integrated maybe approach we need for all of these rogue nations? You know, I was talking to a member of the congressional delegation here um, and you know, remarked that it seems like the bad guys are really kind of lining up against us. Um, and you know, we see it happening uh, in Ukraine with Iran providing drones to, uh, uh, to the Russians. And, you know, frankly, I, you know, I've had discussions w with senior officials in the Biden administration asking them, hey, are these drones really that big a deal? And it's not that they're that technically advanced. We just don't have anything to combat them with, right? So, you know, it's, um, it's a kind of a messy situation. And I think a, a, a better approach uh, would be to target regime officials for um, sanctions, not only in name. 
make it hurt. Um, a senior official, uh, when I was talking to him a few months ago about uh, hostage affairs, said, you know, bad actors respond to threats of violence and to their pockets. And it's true. So make it hurt. Figure out how to make it hurt. Um, and I think that, uh, to their credit, uh, the Biden administration, many of whom were in the Obama administration and uh, learned hard lessons on Iran, I think are saying the right things. They are taking a better, um, more nuanced approach to the current protest movement than Obama did in 2009, and then that Trump did in, in, in 2019. So there's, there's some hope there. Um, but I, I think if you were to ask any one of them in their private conversations, they would tell you, we have a lack of adequate intelligence uh, on what's happening on the ground. Um, and, and unfortunately, in '09, right, Ahmadinejad got in because the opposition sat down and said, well, this is a corrupt election yeah. and we won't participate in it. And the lesson from that is it actually reduces your leverage, doesn't increase it. Let me ask you one last question. The administration has not formally pulled the plug on uh, the JCPOA yet. Um, from your perspective, and then the concern is that Iran actually goes nuclear and becomes more dangerous. That said, there's also a sense that when you're in the nuclear club, you have to play by nuclear club rules, right? Everybody else has more weapons than you do, for example. What's the right course from, from your perspective on whether or not to continue with JCPOA and deal with what could ultimately be a nuclear Iran and whether or not we need to worry as much about that as, as people spend time worrying about it? We've spent a lot of time worrying about it for a very long time, and I think it would be unrealistic of um, us as observers to think that the U.S. and other powers will stop spending so much time thinking about it. I would say that that approach uh, hasn't yielded very many dividends, and uh, it, you know, kind of this myopic view of everything through the lens of nuclear um, has, uh, has hurt us when it comes to Iran. I, I would also say that no one is going to disagree that having a non-proliferation deal with uh, one of the world's great adversaries, the free world's great adversaries, uh, and one that's so close to having a, a, a weapons capability, uh, no one would tell you that you know we shouldn't have a non-proliferation deal with them. I don't think it's going to happen in the form of resuscitation of the JCPOA. Um, I think that the Biden administration cannot make the case right now that they should be negotiating with, uh, with Iran. They've said that publicly. Um, I don't think that this is the moment to, to do it. At the same time, we should be looking at what if this regime does fall? we still aren't going to want them to have a nuclear weapon. So, you know, we should be thinking about this in, in, in terms of a longer-term treaty um, and one that would stand the test of time. You, you, uh, one last question, because you raised this now. In the event that the Ayatollahs fall, what replaces them? Because there's a lot of very rosy thinking. Putin will fall and Navalny will... Yeah. Well, no, actually, whoever succeeds Putin could actually be worse than Putin. You know, we've been talking about that a lot this weekend, and one of the speakers talked about um, the potential for, you know, some of the great thinkers who are in prison right now could come out and run the country. I don't think that that's true. And for that reason, I think we need to be incubating a strong civil society in diaspora here in the United States. There are all kinds of immigration problems that make it very difficult for an Iranian dissident to make their way from Tehran to Washington, D.C. 
uh, I'm trying to help figure out how we do that so that um, we have uh, people with knowledge and experience in different fields that can be applicable to running a post-Islamic Republic Iran. But I would say we're 25 years too late in doing this work. And uh, that's on the Iranian-American community. It's not on anybody else. Um, and we need to own up to that. Jason, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Vaga. And before we go, a very special thanks to Peter Van Prague, the driving force behind this truly unique forum, and his amazing staff for putting together another great program with diverse voices from all around the world, and for taking such good care of us there and back. We wish them all a very restful Thanksgiving. And to all of you, thanks for listening and a very happy Thanksgiving. And we look forward to seeing you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Thanks so very much and have a great holiday.